How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I'm joined by Alex and Mike Israel once again. And they are going to hate against one another again for an hour so you can enjoy that although if we can just not bring up an mrv this time that would be quite nice (laughs) i can't make any promises you know me you know me it's the only thing i have you love an mrv joke i know that (laughs) my favorite (laughs) so Today, the guys are going to talk a bit about some other aspects of hypertrophy, um, mostly muscle damage and then kind of metabolite cell swelling, the applications and practically what would that mean for programming. And I think, Alex, if you want to start off with where your kind of understanding of muscle damage is in terms of hypertrophy, maybe just summarize because I know we kind of did an episode talking about it in quite some depth as well. Yeah, yeah. So we did that one podcast where we talked, we scraped the surface after the amino acid discussion. Um, so uh, I got kind of interested in muscle damage because most of my research has to do with uh, the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. And if you look back at the research, like kind of like the almost like the premise of like the mechanistic me- mechanistic stuff for hypertrophy it was kind of like muscle damage. Um, they kind of speculated muscle damage from a long time ago. Um, it's basically because we didn't have a lot of direct studies. Um, we didn't have the technology available at that time to really see. Um, so it became speculatory, and then over time, they can actually see the damage occurring, and then they kind of just draw these conclusions of muscle damage causes hypertrophy. And it was kind of an interesting model um, that not a lot of people went against for a while because it kind of made sense. You go to the gym, you break something apart, and then you eat, recover, and it grows back. And no one really said anything against that for a long time until we had more research coming out showing that at least recently anyway, where I think like Damas, Felipe Damas, um, had a, a few studies now showing that damage may not be the primary driver. Um, and I think by now, between myself, Mike, uh, everyone else who's way smarter than me, uh, speculate that tension is probably the primary driver. And then it's like, how much tension do we have? And that's where volume comes into play. So I started to research uh, muscle damage directly um, with that, a lot of reviews. And there's nothing that really points to damage being causative. Um, it might be synergistic. My, I mean, I don't even have a very, very little data that even kind of speculates that it might be causative, but I really don't think that muscle damage is warranted in training. I personally think that it's just a side effect of training. And I think Mike actually just put a really cool infographic, um, super easy to read infographic. <laughs> I think it was like a Word doc or something um, that kind of showed uh, what, ca- what can cause damage and how that can actually cause growth too as damage it causes damage as a side effect but like novelty of exercise that you and i talked about as being probably pretty important for hypertrophy eccentric contractions um that sort of thing so in my uh small article that i sent you that's on my uh, uh my blog it goes into some pretty good detail on muscle damage and uh, basically i laid out as saying that it's just a side effect in my opinion um, there's a very casual role with maybe some molecular stuff like calcium signaling, um, but you also get that in like concentric contractions too. So I think it has to do with more being a side effect of eccentric contractions and how eccentric contractions are very powerful and provide more tension and lower cost of energy. Um, so that's kind of where I stand right now is it just being a side effect. So I'll let Mike pick up on that before going further. All that's wrong. And, and Alex, let me be clear. It's not wrong because things about it are actually incorrect. It's because you're stupid. That's what I think, you know. Um, and really, as smart as I am, what I think is true. So, back to you. Yeah, I apologize. You should. You should. Um, how dare you? Um, okay. Yeah. So, that, that was really good stuff. I can't say I disagree with any of that. Um, 
I think the damage and growth thing is still a little bit mysterious, right? Um, we want to be careful not to rule out something we can't really rule out yet. And unfortunately, we, or fortunately or not, we can't rule out damage yet as a potential driver of hypertrophy. Um, but um, we certainly uh, can't say that it is a driver of hypertrophy yet. And one of the reasons is because it's really tough to pick apart damage and defective modalities. For example, someone could say, well, tension is the driver of hypertrophy. That's right on. How do you impose enough tension to get a robust hypertrophic response without simultaneously damaging muscle tissue? And the answer is there's really no way to do it, right? Tension causes some, some damage, some damage, right? Uh, so I definitely, uh, there's definitely some mystery there. Um, that being said, I think we know enough about damage and hypertrophy to be able to get two ends of the spectrum of damage and growth as labeled unlikely to be true. And so we've got this whole spectrum of damage and growth from a ton of damage to no damage at all or very little. And I think we can zoom into here and say, this is probably good and out here is probably not a good idea. And I think that is really cool as a real world workable recommendation for training. And then we can actually use assessments of damage and training as potential proxies for hypertrophy, or if not proxies for hypertrophy, just directions in which to go for training. So let's lay this out and you guys can tear it apart. This is probably all fucking wrong. So um, we can make the assumption that any amount of damage directly inhibits some amount of hypertrophy. And this comes from the understanding that the recovery adaptation resource pool is this finite amount of stuff. Uh, and then any amount of damage you do just shrinks the amount left for adaptation. It's a very reasonable idea. It can very well be true. But at the same time, um, it's uh, also true that the very tension that causes the damage is a byproduct. The more of it you get, the more adaptation you milk out. So it's kind of like if you look at it like this, any amount you train, damage goes up and the stimulus goes up. Let's say it's not even causative, right? Just correlative. If you say, I don't want any damage, you're by definition saying I want no stimulus at all, right? And if, if you say, okay, well, let's train more and train more and train more, at some point, you know, at some, you know, we don't know where the stimulus is worth the damage. It's for sure worth the damage at some point, right? Because if you really said no damage at all is the ideal, nobody would grow because zero damage would be solved. So some amount of stimulus is worth the damage. The question is how much? And, and here is um, my uh, sort, of, sort of hypothetical scenario that I think might be useful. We know, let us assume, just to be conservative, that damage competes completely with hypertrophy and that any damage that we have that we don't need to have is a bad idea, okay? In that case, let's say we're training with three sets per session per muscle group and we are getting no indicators at all of any kind of damage, right? Uh, if we do blood work, there's no creatine kinase spillover. If we do strength assessments, there's no strength decrement at any time point post session. Um, yeah, there's no soreness whatsoever. There's no uh, acute soreness. There's no delayed soreness, nothing. You literally, you guys know the kind of workout, you go in and do three sets of curls and you're like, and nothing happens, okay? So that kind of workout, let's say someone was to confidently pro proclaim that doing any more than that would be suboptimal. Now, that's a bit tricky because you could say, well, doesn't the research show that generally more volume is better, especially when you're considering low volumes? It's, yeah, but, but, uh, but damage, right? Okay, 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 damage is bad. But because we're not really detecting a whole lot of damage at three sets, isn't it worth exploring four sets and seeing how that feels? And if four sets gives us fucking crazy doms, tons of strength loss, well, shit, we should just go back to three, right? But if we try four, then it works well, and we, you know, either that session or and in two or three sessions, we manage to be recovering super well. There's no apparent bombs or any kind of damage indicator around. Then we say, oh, gee, well, we're getting four work sets now. It's almost certainly more hypertrophic stimulus. Still with a very low to manageable amount of damage, it's probably worth it on the net balance. So that's the one side of the coin. 
So I would say if someone, so the real world implication here is if someone tells you, hey, I'm training like this, you say, do you like, uh, how do you feel after training sessions? Do you have like, do you want a lot strength loss? Do you get sore? Do you get delayed onset soreness? And if they tell you, look, I feel fucking totally fine. I, I can't tell that I train. Almost certainly, if damage even competes with hypertrophy, then the answer is, oh, okay, that's cool. Maybe you can explore doing a little bit more volume because it's probably going to get you more growth and you don't have to worry about damage yet. And if you bump into damage, you wait it out, chill out, maybe go back and then try bumping again. Someone's actually tried this. James Krieger uh, had an auto-regulatory volume adjustment experiment he did on himself where he didn't even use performance the first time. He used just plain old soreness. He's like, if something got me sore, I would stop adding volume to it. And then when it didn't get me sore anymore, I started adding volume again. And, you know, his own, for whatever an N of one is worth, he said he had great results, right? But it sort of makes theoretical sense. Then on the other hand, let's say someone says, I'm training with uh, eight sets per session, three times a week, and I have overlapping DOMs. Like, I never actually not sore. I come into a workout sore, I get more sore, I leave and I go, I don't get completely healed and I hit the next workout, so on and so on and so forth. If we're real serious about damage competing with hypertrophy, which I think the DAMA series of studies and just general theory says probably should be taken seriously, then this is unlikely that such an approach is optimal, right? I would go so far as to say it's probably just going to cause you to reduce performance over a long time and probably get you hurt. But even if it doesn't do that, it's almost certainly not the right way to do things. So if someone says, like, I'm doing three, you know, I'm doing sets of eight for chest three times a week, and you're like, how are you feeling? I'm sore all, literally all the time, literally all the fucking time. Uh, you say, yeah, gee, you know, maybe you should pair it back to five or six sets and you'll recover better and you'll probably do better because you won't have as much damage competing with adaptations. They do that and they find, oh my God, I have much better results. So damage and hypertrophy relationship, even if it's one of any amount of damage is bad or uh, some damage is bad or even damage is uh, hypertrophic to a point because right, it's for sure to a point, no one in their right mind thinks the more damage you cause, the more you grow. That's fucking insane, right? It's just wrong based on literature. It's mechanistically impossible, right? You just break, just cut your muscle open and steal it back and it'll be fucking Ronnie Cole in that next time. It doesn't work, right? So all systems have their boundaries. So whatever amount of damage correlates to hypertrophy, we can still have that rubric where there is such a thing as if you're just not getting any fucking evidence of damage, you could probably train more and get better. If you're really, really, really fucked up, you probably should be training less. So we have this little boundary and within it, the nuance is very interesting. I have like, I made a lecture for RP plus where I have three different models uh, of like a damage and hypertrophy compete directly at the very lowest levels. Then there's an intermediate moderate amount of damage that's optimal. And then the other one is like a pretty high amount of damage, but still recovers before the next session is optimal. They lead to slightly different understandings of how you should train, but in none of them, do you show up to the gym, feel not a goddamn thing, and say, I'm growing my best ever? And in none of them, do you show up to the gym completely fucked up every time and be like, this is just how you grow, bro. So uh, what do you guys think about that, Alex? What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, I would like to clear one thing up is, uh, even in my article, I kind of paint a picture of a lot of it being negative, negative towards muscle damage. Uh, but towards the end, it kind of uh, calculates what you kind of said, where it's kind of mysterious. It's like murky water there. Um, there is some tiny little bit of uh, evidence showing it could possibly be anabolic. Uh, maybe. I wouldn't hang my hat on that. Um, but I would also say that uh, you mentioned that tension uh, almost always equals muscle damage to a degree. Uh, if you're putting tension on a muscle, I would like to bring up a repeated bout effect, of course, where uh, that is nicely displayed in a Dama study and many others where uh, maybe when you begin uh, a mesocycle with new volume or taking time off, et cetera, you're going to have a lot of muscle damage. Muscle protein synthesis is going to be skyrocketing, but there's just not a lot of hypertrophy or maybe none at all happening uh, for a while. Then a repeated bout effect takes place, but there's still tension on the muscle. So tension is still there, but with the repeated bout effect, uh, there's less and less and less damage. And we start to see more hypertrophy. Um, but I, I do think that muscle damage will be there and it's not something that you should completely avoid by any by any means. I don't think you should go into a training session like I'm not going to get any muscle damage. It's definitely going to be a side effect, but I'm just playing uh, the card saying you shouldn't look for muscle damage all the time. You shouldn't be going after it like, hey, I'm going to damage the fuck on my biceps today every time you go in, uh, which I think is a problem with some people. Um, they go hard, brother. They want to fucking tear it apart, and then they get, like you said, it runs through recoverable uh, problems. Does that make sense? 
I yes, it does. I think this is maybe where we split our views a little bit. I think damage is something that you should be aware of. Because I don't know if this is what you're saying. If it's not, please correct me. A lot of folks who say we shouldn't be chasing muscle damage in the next breath say muscle damage is irrelevant to hypertrophy. I don't think it's irrelevant. Well, it's for sure not irrelevant because the Dama studies, if they're remotely indicative of physiological reality, damage is not irrelevant to hypertrophy because it's competitive with hypertrophy at, at, at high levels, right? Um, and then we can also say that if you're, if you're not getting any damage at all and you're not upping the volume, you can't possibly answer the question of why not because the answer is wrong. Like more volume is better for sure if you're not accruing any damage. We're talking about you're essentially arguing against studies that you know, one set of 10 is, uh, isn't as a hypertrophic as two or three sets of 10. I mean, the universal answer is, of course not, right? So, uh, so then what I would say is we shouldn't be chasing the most damage possible. 100%, that's fucking stupid. But we maybe should be chasing an intermediate amount of damage, not because it is itself hypertrophic, but it correlates to the amount of tension that may, may likely cause maximum hypertrophy in the sense that if you get no damage, are you really doing enough volume to challenge your physiology to grow? I would say probably not. Now, if your retort is, well, yeah, you could be, holy shit, you just discovered the greatest fucking way to train ever. Cause almost no damage, throughput enough tension for reliable growth. Fuck me, that's like you don't ever need deload. You just grow forever. That's unfortunately just not the case, right? Anyone who has trained remotely longer than six months realizes that in order to continue to grow, Damage is going to come along for the ride some level, whether or not that is do as much work as you possibly can until you get some level of detectable damage, which may very well be true. Or if that answer is get as much damage as you can so long as you heal before your next session. I don't think that one's true, but maybe. Um, or if it's somewhere in between, like get a little bit fucked up, but not too much and not too little. And that's the best. I think damage, for, because we're targeting those particular zones, I don't know which zone to target personally, although I have my bias to the first two and not the last one, um, I think that uh, damage is instructive, uh, potentially as an autoregulatory mechanism, the detection of such damage through whatever ways you can, maybe a good autoregulatory mechanism for your training program, not the only one. I think performance is ultimately the best one, but, uh, but certainly something that is... Um, Instructive. For example, if you're a startup program, say, and you're doing five sets of 10, and you're so fucking sore, you can't shit properly. Are you willing to bet you're growing your most muscle? I'm willing to bet you're not. And I have the Dama studies to, to support that. You know what I mean? Like, you're so fucking sore, your body's barely recovering. It's directly competing against games. So a lot of times people say, like, it's okay. Muscle damage will say, like, hey, are you sore? They're like, yeah, but I'm going to train anyway. Like, why? Well, because so-and-so on the internet said that damage and, and, uh, and muscle growth have nothing to do with each other. Like, that's wrong. Right. So I, I, you know, there's the one side and then the other side of the coin that keeps repeating um, is, you know, if you're causing no damage at all, hardly any technical damage and you're doing this through, which you have to do through low volumes, um, if, then the question becomes, why don't you just do higher volumes? And uh, there's no good retort to that that's evidence-based or theoretically sound. So what do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's a good way to look at that as well as, um, I think it's kind of two different ways of looking at the same thing. I think we're saying the same thing, but kind of two different angles where um, I still don't chase damage, but I am aware of it. Um, so I still try and chase volume. I'm not against volume. I want to be very clear about that from the past podcast. I'm not against volume. I'm against huge volume jumps, um, especially if you don't need them. I think you agree on. Um, but with those volume jumps over time, even small rep progressions, you can get tiny amounts of damage. Um, which is, is there for a, for the ride. I wouldn't say, oh, fuck, I can't do a uh, increase that rep because I'm going to get damaged and that doesn't, no, no, absolutely not. Um, but uh, but the, it's the degree of the muscle damage for sure. Um, and that's why I wanted to write that article because there are still a lot of people go out and just, they have that in their head that damage equals hypertrophy. So they go out and literally try and do as much damage. Then they find out things like eccentric training causes damage. They do everything eccentric fucking, and then it's, ah, fuck. I remember before. those days. Yeah, I've, I've been there, and so I, that's that's what I was trying to put out. Um, I also would like to point out that I, I would like to hear your opinion, at least. I've seen some studies where uh, soreness doesn't always equate to muscle damage. Um, so it definitely does. 
It definitely does. So what do you Sorry, think? Sorry, continue. I don't mean to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead, asshole. Go fucking. No, no, I'll go ahead. talk when I want to talk. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'm sorry. I, were you? Were you? Uh, was that your question, or did you have more? Yeah, that, that, my question was uh, to you. I've seen studies where, um, of course, it's in the lab. They're on like ISO thermometer, uh, you know, ISO machines and all that shit, and they're looking at soreness and like force production, and they look and they're looking at damage as well via biopsy or ultrasound. And, um, they basically found that muscle soreness uh, doesn't always equate to muscle damage. Um, so if that is true then when you're coming in and you're, and you're basing things off soreness, it doesn't always mean that there's damage present. So what do you think about that? So uh, soreness is not a perfect proxy for damage. Uh, one of the number one reasons for that is people are not perfect re reliable indicators of how sore they are. Soreness is a perceptive measure, so people are going to have a subjective bias one way or another, or just not be very good at detecting things. Um, so, for example, your degree of sort of like nociceptive uh, precision can be relatively low to where you just don't feel much pain in your muscles until there's significant amount of damage. Um, on the other hand, you could have like a bro attitude of like, no, nah, I'm fucking good. I'm not sore. You know, people will just make that up and laugh. Like, oh, Jesus, it's, it's really super, super easy. Um, you know, you, uh, you get, uh, you get a, a fucking, you know, a girl in the lab and uh, you have her do isokinetic dynamometry and you get like one of the lab guys, one of the research assistants is uh, a really good looking guy. And the girl wants to impress the guy. So he's like, are you sore? She's like, no, of course not. This is easy. You're like, or the other way around, right? But it's like, that happens all the time in college. It's fucking college. You got master's students evaluating undergrads. It's, it's all like, I'm going to impress these people. Like, they, by the way, these are all volunteers normally. Like, they volunteer for this. So they, they, they're almost always people like, oh, I, I never get sore. <laughs> like, so, so it's one of those things where um, it's like, I imagine most of that error comes from just perception. Um, uh, and uh, I've, I've looked at a number of studies that assess uh, perceptive degrees or per, uh, sort of perceptive scales of soreness and correlate them to damage. The correlation is good, but it's not perfect. You know? Because it's not perfect, it doesn't mean anything other than the fact that we can't use perceptive soreness as the only indicator of training and the only R regulatory variable. We can't throw it away altogether. Um, uh, some folks have suggested that uh, soreness and damage have uh, nothing to do with each other. That, that's just fucking straight bullshit. It's fucking bullshit. Right, like so, do you you do a set of ten? Nothing gets sore. Is there a universe in which you are more damaged than you do with a set of eight, eight by eight by ten maxi centric overload? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you really willing to willing to bet? Like, so for example, you did a, a couple sets of whatever, and you didn't get sore at all last week. Uh, no soreness, no DOMS at all. You were super honest. You did this, your old the whole palpation thing. You did the whole rating CO, zero soreness. Um, and then this week you did some shit. And it, it, it's like the kind of soreness that you can't like brush your teeth. Like you can't flex your pack to brush your teeth because you got to drop the toothbrush. Are you willing to bet that there's a 50-50 chance that you're just as damaged both times? What the, what the fuck are we talking about? Like that kind of late onset muscle soreness is, results from immune infiltration into the muscles, which causes a shitload of secondary damage. It's been demonstrated a fucking ton. Um, so, it, you know, it, you know, are there nuances in there? Like if someone says I'm a three on soreness versus I'm a two from last week, is it necessarily more damage? Of course not. These are subjective scales, but, uh, but it is a tool and it is a, is a very good tool. It's just not a perfect tool. Um, uh, damage also correlates, uh, to performance actually very well, right? So return to performance correlates the damage very well. So we do, we put you on the isokinetic dynamometer, we get a max peak tension in your quadriceps or your knee extension. Right, and then we do eight by twelve, some crazy shit to fuck you up, and then every day you come in and we measure peak tension. Uh, the damage, uh, we also measure damage. So CK levels every day. When your CK levels roughly normalize is just about when you're going to have return normal force production. Uh, but those are also imperfect. There's not a perfect correlation there. Like sometimes you're still a little bit damaged, but the neural effect has caught up, and now you're stronger. Right, like, you know, especially in early phase of training, they learn how to do the leg extension better. They can be stronger the next day. Fuck, you can get stronger in a familiarization session. You know what I mean? That's a very, actually very well documented. It takes one session to make you stronger because you just know how to leg extend now versus not. So that's not a perfect indicator either, but mechanistically nobody really debates that one. So what I would say is, how do you know if, if your muscles are damaged? I think there's probably three ways to do it. One, uh, objective measurements of performance. So for example, if you come back in, you systemically feel fine, but you try to do pecs again and you're underperforming and you're like, fuck, your pecs are probably still damaged or potentially still damaged. If you have uh, a lot of soreness in your pecs, they're potentially still damaged. And if you perceive a weakness in your pecs and kind of like, not soreness, but kind of, you guys don't want to talk about like a stickiness, like a frayingness to the muscle. Like you're like, 
are your pecs healed? Like, they don't hurt, but they're like, I don't know, they feel kind of tight and kind of like, ah, like you contract them and they're like, eh, right? Uh, I think that sort of perception is also probably correlated to some extent to damage. Um, because what you can do, and I've done this before just for shits and giggles, I did it by accident once and then on purpose a couple times. You can do a really good workout that normally gets you sore, and then you take a lot of anti-inflammatories either before or right after the workout. You actually don't get DOMS most of the time. This is DOMS just straight up never shows up. And I did this for my chest once. I never got this huge, you know, like the full body pec DOMS, and you're like, oh my God, my whole pec's destroyed. You don't get that. But right here in the lines of the highest force where all the muscles converge, you have a not pain, but a kind of a discomfort and a feeling that things are connected by strings. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like you, you get up out of a chair after squats and quads, you're like, dude, I swear to God, my knees can just pop off my fucking body at any point. Like it was that feeling for like three or four days, but that's direct damage, right? That's not, there's no immune system infiltration because the uh, delayed onset, the NSAIDs just felt like, fuck that, the immune system never showed up, right? So it's one of those things where if you combine all of those, you start to get a still imperfect, but pretty good idea of how damaged you are. And then you make sure to dose appropriately so that you're, you know, training at least as much as gets you to detect some damage, potentially more, and never training so much that you're super fucked up and you just show up to the gym again and you're like, let's fucking hit it, pal. What do you think? No, I agree with that. I think that makes sense. And I just visualize Dr. Mike walking in with like fucking ibuprofen, this fucking... Uh, I eat it like candy. You know, it's terrible because the Advil, they're sugar-coated. Um, they're delicious. Are you serious? You never had the sugar-coated Advils? No, no. What do they sell? You buy, the, you buy the regular, you buy the Walmart ibuprofen, don't you? Little gummy bears? I've got a gummy bear. Oh, my God. How terrible that would be. You're like, <laughs> kids just shit their kidneys right out because they ate like a whole jar of gummy bear ibuprofen. That would actually, you lead to total kidney failure. Well, people will do that, and they would still wouldn't take creatine because your kidneys. But well, the creatine the kidneys just don't get along. Um, it's one of those things where it's like you know you bring people in couples counseling, and creatine sitting there, and the kidney <laughs> shows up, and they're like, "I can't be here in the room with him. I can't do this." And there's this huge, you know, "Come on, let's talk it out." Nope, nope, never again. Uh, but no, I think uh, they kind of put the uh, conclude that. I, I mean, I agree with that. Um, basically, I. I I wouldn't avoid muscle damage. It's going to be there when you progress volume. Um, I, I too use soreness as a proxy uh, for muscle damage, but I don't always think that when I, that, I think that's where we differ a little bit. I don't think that every time I'm sore that, it, that it's muscle damage. Uh, I know I, I just can't, when I'm very, very sore, I, that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out. Um, that's what I've been trying to think about more often is what could also cause that, feeling of soreness because uh, i mean tension overload with nerves innervating the muscle fiber um uh, putting tension on that could that could the inflammatory response cause that as well um i'm not sure uh, i know damage for sure it correlates with soreness but it's uh but doesn't the inflammatory process damage do secondary damage doesn't it fuck shit up see that's another question of mine as well i know uh i have a little bit of information on that in my in my article so that i've definitely seen that but I, i'm not willing to bet that just your inflammatory system would just go ahead and damage muscle fibers on their own. Like, Hey, let's just go damage these. I don't know if that makes any sense. What makes sense to me is once you damage something, uh, the immune system and other metabolites go in to clean things up the rough edges and kind of lay down new materials so it can do that. Uh, I kind of visualize, uh, maybe uh, I talked about this with Steve before, but it's kind of like fuck up your drywall a little bit in your room. You're fucking having a party. You fucking fuck up your drywall. Well, you kind of have to clean up the area and, you kind of further damage the wall before you put down the drywall. And that's the way I kind of visualized it. Um, so I, I don't know if that makes sense if you were just doing what they- makes a lot of sense. Go ahead, explain. No, it makes me, a lot of sense, yeah, please go on. Okay, okay, yeah, I just, I don't know if that would make sense to me if, if you weren't doing a lot of eccentric contractions or if you weren't changing volume, uh, how the inflammatory system would come in and just start to damage things. Um, I'm not positive. I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't think it usually does, which is why if you don't change things or if you don't increase volume, usually you can not cause a whole lot of damage and still cause a lot of tension, which I think there's a, a fine interplay there, which is why I'm not a big fan of programs that start with a lot of volumes. Like for every bullshit MRV argument I've ever had, I have the same like mirror reflection bullshit MED argument, where, which is where people say, we well, shouldn't train super hard because that's super crazy and that you're going to die. And I say, yeah, well, you know, when you start a program, average training is super hard. And they're like, no, no, you just start with average. I think some people are just, just very resistant 
to doing anything except for like four by 10. And they're like, why don't we start with two by 10 and go to six by 10? They're like, no, you start with four by 10, you finish with four by 10. You're like, well, okay. <laughs> but like, you know, something like the Dama study shows is like, maybe you don't want to be sued. Cause people say like, Oh, I'm super sore. This is a talk I had with Jacob Skepis. Um, I was having super sore at the beginning of the program. People say that's normal. Like, I don't think that should be normal. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think you should ease in. That's what the fuck that's is exactly, the point of easing that's in? exactly what I was thinking when I saw that study. He did a follow-up study. What if you started at what you would call an MEV and had less damage? And then you kind of built up to where they had it. I don't know, probably three sets of 10 for the study. Yeah. What if you built yeah. that up and had less damage along the way? Would, that, would they have seen more results? That's a question I had for uh, Felipe. Sure. There's at least one study that shows that the results are roughly even, but you got to get the volumes right. And sometimes the introductory volumes are so low that it's not even MED and they're just pissing away three weeks and the ramp up really only occurs in the third week or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think if the, if the, if the, if the theory, if the Domus, the sort of hypothesis holds that damage is directly competitive with growth, I think the idea of putting people through three or four weeks initially of a crazy amount of damage just seems a, at least, uh, at least questionable, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a good idea. Maybe there's some kind of interesting functional overreaching that occurs and ends up equating things. But I personally don't train people like that. Um, when I used to be a personal trainer, I would start people with one or two sets and work mostly on technique, no loading. And even the, you know, you guys have worked with beginners, the technique gets them sore. Like they just a bodyweight squat gets them sore after a sets of a couple sets of five and then, and then slowly add weight so that they, they never really have this like, Oh my God, I'm super fucking sore. They start out with, um, oh, I'm like, you know, a little bit of a twinge, and then they keep going and add and add and add, and they never really get beyond them a little bit of a twinge until, you know, like, they decide they're going to deload. So the overreaching week before the deload gets them actually really sore. Um, but it's funny, is like, most of my training, I get only a little bit sore, uh, just a tiny bit, and sometimes not at all. Uh, but if I'm not at all sore, I'm almost always trying to increase either load or reps or volume the next time because if I can get away with not being at all sore, I can probably do more volume and grow. And of course, it's not the only indicator because performance is a really big one. But usually, those two tend to align pretty well. I have never seen someone who get overlapping soreness for several weeks and not start to shift to that in terms of performance, unless they're a raw beginner and it's all neuro gains. But you know, for advanced people, you know, neuro gains don't mean hardly dick. You, know, you run through those in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. You know how to squat. You start high bar squatting again first time in three months. After two sessions, you're as good as you're ever going to be at high bar squatting. There's nothing. It's actually a, a tangent question uh, I had for you, Mike, on increasing volume over time. So based on any model, whether it's mine or yours, um, so I know you like novelty and changing exercises accordingly um, every so often. Um, so let's say you have a certain amount of volume that's worked for you and your chest, let's say chest development. If you're doing chest and tricep development, you're focusing on that for, let's say, an entire macro cycle. Um, and you have a certain amount of volume you found, uh, sets per week, let's say, um, you got really good results, you've seen uh, the growth happen, and then you deload and you change the exercises up. So whatever amount of time it takes for you, you did a certain X amount of exercises, you didn't change those exercises, you increased the volume over time. Now you change the exercises. Now would you keep the volume where it was for the new exercises? No? Reduce, greatly reduce. Yeah. So like if I'm going from four sets to eight sets in a mesocycle, uh, the next mesocycle, I might go four sets to nine sets, same exercises. The next mesocycle, I might go five sets to nine sets. The one after that, I might go six sets to 10 sets. And then I'm like cashed out. Then I switch exercises. When I switch exercises, I might go two sets to five sets, then three sets to six sets, then four sets to so on and so forth, right? So when you reintroduce it, when you introduce a new exercise, you've got to start take, take it easy unless you get the Damas effect where you just damage the shit out of yourself for no good goddamn reason. One of the ones that are this is very easy to experience for most people is lunges. You guys ever reintroduce lunges? And you're like, oh, four by 10. And then you just can't walk for a week and a half? Like, Ooh. I literally, when I reintroduce lunges in my program every couple of months, I'll start with one set of lunges. I'll get a little bit sore, and then I'll do two sets. Then I'll get a little bit sore, and a three and a four. And after a while, I'm doing five sets of lunges and only getting a little bit sore. Great progression, great results, no overdoing it, and it seems to make sense. There's also an injury concern there. Um, it's been very well documented that those what is the, the acute to chronic work to rest ratio, or sorry, work to uh, acute to chronic workload ratio. Um, it's like you're used to this amount of work chronically and then you go like that, like that blub, 
that little blip there can uh, is very likely to cause injury, right? Or is is is, is a cause a uh, causation mechanism for injury? Uh, it's basically unaccustomed workload. If you haven't done cable flies in a long time and you start with six by ten, uh, whatever six sets of them, you are essentially doing that. And then the next day you come in and do chest again, you might have received so much damage from this unaccustomed workload in parts of your connective tissue that you're not used to being damaged that you may simply have an injury. Right? You may even have an injury during that, you know, on the sixth set. That's it. So I think there's every reason to ease in when you change almost anything. I'll ease in when I change rep ranges. You know, like if you're not used to doing sets of 20 to 30, you don't just do five sets. You're like, well, I'm used to five sets of 20 to 10 to 20. That's going to be a different stimulus. Metabolites, self-swelling, all that stuff. It affects you a little differently, and it can cause an extreme amount of muscle damage, extreme amount of soreness, and uh, is really just uh, not a good idea. Also, I think because the novelty effect has an effect, you can get more out of less when you start something new. You know, um, the novelty effect is really just like being a beginner again to a certain extent. Uh, you know, if you haven't done lunches in eight months, it's not going to take six sets of lunges to get you more jacked. It might only take one, just like if you ever started lunges for the first time in your life, it might take one. But maybe because you're more well-trained, you've done it before, maybe I'll take two sets. So you start at two, you don't have to start at six. No, totally. I want to ask your opinion on that because that's exactly what I do. <laughs> so when I reintroduce uh, exercises, maybe I haven't done like six months, um, I'll start very, very low. And like you said, I'm like, fuck, like I'm getting, I was doing like 15 sets of triceps and now it was like my first day. I haven't done these and like close grip, my fucking triceps hurt. Uh, yeah. So I want to kind of bring that up because people will take your advice on the fucking progression sets. Okay. That bullshit that you always talk about with the set increases or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, but they won't ever take into account the, the novelty exercises and they go in like, Oh, I was doing 10 sets before. Now I'm going to go to 12 sets, but I'm going to do bench instead of flies. And they're like, oh, yeah. Can't do it. yeah. That's a really bad idea. One of the cool things about novelty is that because it's uh, you sort of have to do less work uh, at the beginning to get reaccustomed to the exercise, it's actually a great break for connective tissues. Because people are like, oh man, I'm so used to squats, I can do a ton of them without getting super fucked up. Like, okay, so you can do 10 sets of squats a week. Um, that's 10 sets of damage to your joints a week. And nobody in the real world can say that shit doesn't add up. So at some point, if you go to leg presses and only four sets of leg presses a week, you're getting like pretty decent pumps and stuff. That's kind of a good thing. Like until you build up to 10 sets of leg press a week, you're actually getting like pretty decent gains from, from not so much joint work. And you might not be getting your best gains. You might get better gains doing 10 sets of squats than you were four sets of leg press. But because you don't want that excessive muscle damage, you don't want to pay the cost, it's kind of an auto-break mechanism, sort of an auto-regulatory lower joint stress time. Some people rotate their exercises very infrequently or not at all because they're like, I'll just get worse at squatting if I stop squatting. But you've got to stop squatting every now and again to give your joints a break. Otherwise, you're going to squat yourself into a fucking early grave. And if, you know, a lot of, you know, the best bodybuilders, maybe all of them will say like, yeah, like there's exercises that I won't do for a long time because they'll just beat you up and they're super effective, but you've got to move away from every now and again. I think there's in some circles, uh, especially maybe in like evidence-based natural bodybuilding, there's some circles of like variation is bad. I don't know where they come up with this, but like I'm just going to do the same movements for years or some shit. It's like, you know, there's upsides to that, but there's also downsides to that. Um, so I think it's it's something that's, you know, variation is beneficial, not just because it might reignite some new muscle growth, not because it's just not boring anymore, but also because it might offer you the ability to train with slightly lower volumes for a while, even hitting the joints from a different angle. Because it's the, you know, what, what, what causes long-term chronic injury? Repetitive, high-volume stress in the same exact pattern. If you switch from leg presses to squats or vice versa, you get a change and a drop in volume at the same time for at least a short period. That can lead to a lot of healing and a lot of really like long-term progress. I, does that make sense at all? Totally. Yeah, totally. Awesome. So um, amazing discussion between you both. And I just had one quick question for Alex uh, in that Mike talked about how he auto-regulates and forgive me if I'm wrong, Mike, or correct me rather, uh, based on kind of the perception of soreness, um, just fatigue within the muscle, kind of the fraying feeling, just kind of that perception and then obviously performance. And I think Alex, that wasn't how you auto-regulate your own kind of volume in terms of like number of hard sets. Or is that also something that you use or do you have a different kind of way of doing so? And for, actually, was that right, Mike? It was. Yeah, um, that's part of the way out of regulate in addition to performance and a few other metrics. 
Um, yeah, so for auto regulation, um, I don't, I do use auto regulation, but it's, I, I keep it very kind of like in the back of my mind. Um, and I use the biggest proxy as performance dropping first, unless I'm super fucking sore to where, you know, it's usually in the beginning of like a meso or something, um, to where just getting on like the leg curl machine, my, like I came and extend my leg. I'm like, okay, fuck this. Um, but other than that, I use performance uh, drops. So for example, like sets and RPEs. So for, if I'm using an example of like a leg press and I undulate between like, let's say eight reps on Monday and 10 reps like curls on fucking Thursday. Uh, when I come back to that, if my same sets, my RPEs are super fucking high, um, much different from the past week, or I can't complete the same sets and reps for the RPE, then I'll auto-regulate that. Um, so I, I keep in account the soreness I'm perceiving, but again, I don't, there's been times where I've been kind of sore and I've been able to almost get like PRs. So I don't, I, I use soreness, but I don't, I don't just use that. So I'm probably, me and Mike probably agree a little bit on that. Um, so in just to confirm, is that a case of if performance is going down, then you maybe you, you reduce volume or is that when you think about, or if you're recovered, you're increasing volume. Is that kind of the equation you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's almost solely based on RPE or RIR. Um, so yeah, so if I end up hitting like a bunch of RPE nines out of nowhere and the previous week it was the same load and the same sets and I was getting like RPE sevens and eights, I'm like, okay, next week I should be able to go up. And like for that day, for whatever reason, or those exercises or that specific exercise, um, it's, I'm just like hitting the wall or like my, my reps are now dropping for the same load. Then I will, I will drop the load or I'll drop the reps. Usually I just drop the reps. So if I got like, 10 the last week and then i got 10 the next week and then this week for some reason i'm getting eight i'm like hitting an rp9 i'm like okay fuck it i'm just gonna like the rest of my sets i'm gonna do eight seven six and just go to an rpe whatever my rpe is for like eight and my reps will drop um and that's usually on a day-to-day basis uh, for whatever reason and then the following week is usually better and i can uh increase uh, so does that make sense at all like clear that up <laughs> And I, so I guess on a week to week basis, your sets are generally staying static. You're not manipulating that frequently. No, no. Once yeah. I, once I personally start a mesocycle, I start exactly how Mike uh, explained where I kind of, I ease my way into it because there's no point in getting that much damage and throwing myself under the bus. Um, and it sets up the rest of the macro cycle very well. Now, after I get, let's say, for example, I might start at two sets and then go to three sets the following week. And then almost all my training is between three and four sets for months. And then at the end of, or whenever I think a deload should be coming up, I'll try and add in a couple more sets uh, to functional overreach, which I think is great for a variety of reasons. I know we talked about that last time, but not only just to overreach, but just to see if I was being a pussy this whole time. And maybe <laughs> I increased a couple sets. And then after that deload, I'm like, huh, I'm not that fucking sore. This whole fucking time I could have done four and five sets. And then maybe I'll start the next, next mesocycle there. Um, so usually I do auto-regulate just uh, by reps and not necessarily sets. Um, and that's just because, you know, neurologic the reasons, fatigue, stress, et cetera. Uh, for some reason, my body is just not allowing me to lift the same amount of load for the same RPE as last time. So I'm not going to hit failure to try and hit those reps because um, that's the long-term game. Cool. Perfect. Uh, I don't know if, Mike, you, do you have any thoughts on that? or I think that's a fine way to do things. Yeah. Um, I think no, that no, no, I would be a <laughs> well, here, here comes the disagreement. I think uh, I, I personally am a bit more proactive on uh, using sets and reps and weight to auto-regulate. Um, and I use sets predominantly, in many cases, while letting RIR uh, take care of the reps and the weight. So I basically address the I modulate reps and weight to hit the RIRs I want to the weeks I want them. And then I use sets of uh, via proxies of, am I still performing on track? If yes, increase sets. If it's starting to look like performance is fading, keep sets stable. If performance declines, deload or take a light session or something like that and sort of recycle the process. Um, so my, I don't do a whole lot of auto-regulation. I do auto-regulation with reps and weight, but that's just to hit RIRs that I want. But as far as, uh, am I getting enough volume? And am I progressing in the volume to some extent, if I'm able, that is something I address with uh, work sets. 
And my only other follow-up question would be uh, for that, Mike, is there any kind of, oh, well, there are obviously some muscle groups that are more easy to get sore versus other muscle groups just due to like the chest and how the muscle fibers are kind of displayed on the body. And it's just the eccentric damage is much easier on like the chest rather than say the back or something like that. And I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, at least something like calves, um, they very rarely, I think I could probably drive myself um, to a very high number of sets. Um, although probably see performance decreases, but there's some muscle groups, maybe some like the delts. Um, is there a way you find managing those muscle groups a little bit differently to say like the chest or the hamstrings, the quads? Yeah, for sure. So some muscles just don't get very sore and some muscles get sore, but they don't get doms. Um, so like if I train delts really hard, they feel weak and super fucked up, but they never get doms. Um, well, uh, sorry, side delts and uh, rear delts. My front delts get bounced like crazy. Um, but, um, you know, for those muscle groups, this is why soreness is not the only uh, indicator. Performance is super golden. You know, I train side and rear delts probably three or four times a week. So I'm very acutely aware of the performance metrics. And uh, adding a set to that is another great thing about those kinds of um, muscles is that their systemic fatigue contribution is so small that adding a set's really not a big deal, and you can really just gauge the local fatigue super easily based on performance. Uh, you start, you get a great pump, you get a you know nice and weak, you recover for two days from then, you do some more lateral raises and upright rows. Again, you know, your pump's maybe not as great, so you do one or more extra sets, you get a great pump again, you get a little weak, you recover, you come back, and you keep repeating that, and at some point you're doing kind of a lot of sets, and then for a whole week, you can't hit the numbers you usually hit. That means you're pretty sure maximum recovery volume by definition. And then you deload and you maybe choose some new exercises and some new rep ranges or not. You do repeat the same, but uh, sort of go back to a lower volume and start building back up again. Um, and uh, soreness never really enters the equation a ton, except for, uh, you know, to, to say that if I don't feel it at all, even a week after a workout, then I certainly do more work. And that's usually very well correlated with like pumps and stuff. Like if you had a nasty side delt pump, you're probably going to feel weaker after. I actually don't know if it's possible to get a really good pump and not feel weak uh, for hours and days after. I, I don't think those two are separable, to be completely honest. Um, so um, uh, based on those, I, I don't really need this crazy top-end soreness because basically, for lack of a better term, performance hits first. <laughs> right? Performance will decay first before you ever get DOMS. But for other muscle groups like pecs and stuff like that, um, uh, you know, performance and, and DOMS are really one and one, one, one. I find it's very rare that you can get lots of DOMS over and over, but still maintain a high level of performance. Uh, that almost never happens. Some muscles I'm not even willing to try it, like quads. Um, I'm not squatting with uh, sore quads because that's just how you get hurt. Like I'm not getting under 200 kilos of sore quads. I've done it before and I've gotten hurt. So fuck that shit. Perfect. Cool. I don't know if we have time to cover kind of the second half of this and we're almost kind of touching on it a little bit in terms of kind of metabolites and kind of that pump element and kind of how causative of hypertrophy is that? Because I believe, Alex, you kind of, in terms of like cell swelling, metabolites, you don't necessarily agree or I don't know if Mike fully, um, if this is correct, thinking that Mike thinks that these are causative of hypertrophy. Um, I'd love for you to maybe quickly describe your thoughts on this because i know we've we're a bit short on time alex you want to start sure um so unlike unlike muscle damage um which we talked about extensively um i'm a little bit more curious about metabolites um i'm not willing to throw them out completely i don't think we can do that um i think even anecdotally we've we've had a lot of anecdotal evidence suggesting that they do something and they're, they're warranted in your training for adaptations. Um, now there, I will, I just want to discuss this really cool study that, uh, I actually, uh, I drew out for my master's degree and I didn't have time to do or to funding, but <laughs> luckily enough, I think Jorn was a part of this study, but it was like a recent study of, uh, of this year, 2019, um, where they actually, uh, did an occlusion study. So they did occlusion training, but they occluded the limb, um, and had no training, so there was no tension. And then they did another, uh, the other group where, uh, so that was one group, the second group uh, included the same pressure and then they added tension. So basically what they did was they, they induced metabolites. Um, 
and both groups. And again, the one that they induce metabolites with, with no tension, they saw absolutely no increase in muscle protein synthesis. Now that, that doesn't mean that they're, they don't count and I'm, I'm going to rule it out, but there's some cool evidence like that. It kind of makes me like, uh, I don't know. I don't think they're causative perhaps on their own, but maybe with, uh, during a session or with tension, they may further increase NPS or something like that. So I, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure about it right now. It's a good study. Um, so to, uh, another interesting study was recently done was they introduced lactic acid directly into laboratory animals and caused growth, which was pretty sweet. So um, I think the concentrations might be very different. Um, so there's, there's a difference between how much lactic acid you can accumulate in the periphery and in the, in the blood vessels and nerves and stuff and how much pain that causes versus how much lactic acid actually gets generated inside a cell when it's busy contracting, which might be like an order of magnitude difference, like 10 times inside the cell. If you had that much outside of the cell, the pain would be fucking unbearable. You would, you would just get into a shit. Actually, you'd probably get into, you'd almost certainly get into uh, systemic acidosis and potentially die. Is that um, a human study? Say what? Is that a human study or is that like animal study? That would be a, so, a sick human study. We're going to inject lactate, lactic acid into your fucking muscle. Like, fuck, this hurts. Like, shut up. Do these curls. Uh, well, I don't know if it would be like a, like a Petri dish, you know, like in vitro. or Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I, I, don't, uh, I don't remember the, the exact details of it. But, okay. um, and then there's another study that um, actually linked, um, linked lactic acid biochemically to uh, muscle growth pathways. So that's kind of interesting. Um, what I'm thinking is, uh, so the following, when I've read quite a bit on how tension causes growth and there's mechanoreceptors in the muscle, but, uh, they, first of all, they don't really know exactly what the transduction pathway is between mechanodetection and growth initiation. There's a lot of steps there. It's just no idea about. But some of the steps look like uh, phosphatidic acid might be involved or calcium might be involved. And then uh, those are technically metabolites, right? They're intracellular compounds. Um, so when people say that, you know, growth is caused by tension, tension may cause the release of metabolites inside the muscle, which cause muscle growth to be signaled, right? So tension itself signaling growth, maybe there would have to be a demonstrated um, mechanism for that. And uh, another question is how much metabolite actually leaks out from one cell, leaks into another, and causes growth in that cell? And the answer is probably much less than you see intracellular. So for example, calcium has been hypothesized as a, as a growth mechanism because when you have your motor units firing as, as much as they can, the amount of calcium that floods the muscle is, is hugely different than if they're firing not nearly as hard as they can. The exactly, it's those crazy concentrations that we see close to failure. Remember, if, te if tension really caused hypertrophy just by itself, uh, you would think that, you know, um, you know one repetition um, uh, and then rest for a long time, and then one repetition and rest for a long time, and one repetition and rest for a long time in the heavy range, you say 80%, that would cause robust muscle growth. It's just as good as any other training method. It's, you know, you do 10 repetitions total, rest in, in two minutes between them, that's a set of 10, right? That should grow as much as a set of 10, but uh, so all the research we have, and it's not very good, but all the research we have so far says you probably grow a lot more muscle if you do all the reps back and back and back to back to back, which is another way of saying that, you know, the amount of tension transduction is probably the same, uh, signaling should be the same, but the amount of intracellular uh, phosphatidic acid, calcium, and a couple of other metabolites is radically different is the amount of calcium you get inside a cell when it goes 10 to failure is fucking massive when it does, just does one rep and uh, then you re relax and the calcium gets reabsorbed in the SR and then relax and so on and so forth may never reach those levels. And it might be that, you know, inundation with calcium and perhaps some other metabolites that really causes hypertrophy. Maybe, 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 right? Um, so once you sort of have that understanding, you think, okay, but the next question is, uh, really what we're asking with metabolite training is does, do the metabolites leave their cell and go to other adjacent cells to signal that hypertrophy? And the answer is it might not leave in high enough concentrations to do a fucking thing. 
Um, so it might all be intracellular anyway. So the only way to do that is tension anyway, <laughs> right? Uh, and that may very well be the case. So when people say, you know, it's metabolites uh, versus tension and it's really just tension, it might be another way of saying intracellular metabolites, um, which do, do high reps address that? Yeah, sure, but, but about as well as low reps do. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm very curious to metabolites, very open question. Just one thing I want to leave off on is I, I don't really understand the fascination uh, some folks seem to have with finding the cause of hypertrophy because in almost every other system hypertrophy-related, we have multiple causes. For example, pop quiz, what causes muscle growth from a nutritional and pharmacological perspective? Is it leucine? Is it whole amino acid fractions? Is it insulin? Or is it testosterone? Or is it myostatin reduction? What a fucking idiotic question. It's all those fucking things, man. It's a multifactorial process. Like if you draw out a graph, it's input. Hypertrophy is in the middle. There's, a, you know, those like from textbooks, the arrows that all that stuff points in. And so there's people out there hypothesizing it's just like the fucking muscle growth. And on the training side, it's just, just tension. It's tension. That's it. Tension. Like you couldn't surmise that it, there could be three or four or five. And some of them we don't even know. And maybe one little tiny arrow for damage or maybe not. Right. Um, or a U-shaped curve for damage, who the fuck knows, right? But like, people are just like, no, it's gotta be tension, it can't be metabolites, and then that fucking lactic acid study comes out and they're just like, nah, shit, fuck, that's, that sucks, right? So why are we looking for just one? We just need to be open-minded and, and see where the research goes, and so far there's been no real convincing case that metabolites cause muscle growth, but there's some, some really interesting stuff where you're like, oh, we can't rule it out, and then self-swelling, there's multiple studies that show self-swelling directly causes hypertrophy. It's just it's not even up for debate. Is it relevant in human training? Is the muscle pump enough cell swelling to cause hypertrophy? Is it some kind of hypertrophy that's more transient and it goes back down and back up? Oh, we don't know. But people that say, look, if the pump has nothing to do with hypertrophy, yeah, but it's just make-believe. They're just making that up. Like, it's all about tension. Like, is it really, though? Is that why every bodybuilder on the planet swears by the pump? Maybe they're just stupid and maybe they're wrong. Maybe, and I'm honestly saying that. I'm not being sarcastic, but maybe it's worth listening to. And potentially there's multiple mechanisms for hypertrophy, just like there are in the nutraceutical realm. Very cool. I really enjoyed that. And I think it's, I think that helps everyone to think about these things a little bit more. And I guess inherently we always like there to be one answer, like a black and white, it's this or it's this, because that makes life easier in many ways. Um, but I think trying to do that in this case, maybe making things harder, or at least less effective potentially. Do you guys remember the song black or white by Michael Jackson? I don't. <laughs> Alex, how, how old are you? <laughs> Very young, dude. Apparently. Very young. 26. Do you know who Michael Jackson is? <laughs> he was a white fellow, right? <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, <laughs> show me on the doll where he touched you. We can make millions. Um, but on a serious note, uh, I just, it was a shitty joke that was never took off. Black or white was going to be Michael Jackson reference. Macaulay Culkin's movie music video. Alex, do you know who Macaulay Culkin is? Yes. <laughs> Thank God. No, don't laugh. You don't, you, you don't know the black and white video. I don't even know if you're a real American. Steve, <laughs> you're more American than, than, than Alex here is because he doesn't know <laughs> the black and white video. Do you know Thriller? Yeah, I know Thriller. <laughs> Billy Jean? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't you don't know MRV, so I don't even know what you know. You know, I don't give a fuck about MRV. <laughs> I'm gonna run. Not we're gonna run again. a political campaign against each other. Where like I'm just gonna be like on a freeway, and there's gonna be a road sign that says "fuck MRV." I'm just gonna be like, "God damn it!" I'm gonna take ads out on you and be like, "Do you really want a presidential candidate that'll just have you train with the same amount of volume for a whole mess cycle?" I don't think so. Vote no on proposal, Alex. Vote. Yeah, and then uh, I'll get all the uh, Trump supporters, I guess. It's, it's the same game. Make America do volume again. I don't know. Steve, what's what's what British politics like? Is it Boris something <laughs> or other? Boris Johnson, yeah, mad, mad hair. Um, he's our Trump equivalent at the moment. Sweet. <laughs> he's not so much you better. Having a lot of fun. <laughs> president, he'd be like increasing pr prison sentences every week by sets and shit like that. That's a good idea. <laughs> Auto-regulated prisons. I like it. Maybe we can run on the same platform. <laughs>
there was i did want to see if there was anything like practical recommendations in terms of metabolite work pump work within there and i think there are if people know at least mike's work well enough and i think the same can be said for your work alex is that we're still kind of we're not ruling it out but it's not something that we're putting at the forefront of a training program it's more something that is used more sparingly um, and less of a focus is put there but we're still tying it in because there's good rationale behind that and it's certainly not a bad idea getting stronger for reps over time this should be your number one goal um if that's happening then that's great uh, but if you're never getting pumps so you're never feeling a burn in the target muscle especially with sets higher than 10 reps mm, you should probably be figuring that out either your technique sucks you should be doing more or your nutrition sucks you know like if you're on low carbs all the time and you're losing weight you never get any pumps and coincidentally you don't grow maybe not coincidentally uh, they should make like a like an intra slash pre-workout that's called metabolites. Just drink lactic acid. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> lemon juice. Pour lemon juice on your muscles. <laughs> Guys, I want to say a massive thank you again for you both coming on. Again, really productive discussion. I think we tight brought out some really interesting ideas and concepts and I'm really intrigued by just the ever evolving field in this area. Um, and I think we're getting close to the truth, which is what this is all about. So again, thank you both. And, uh, we'll catch everyone soon. Peace. Thank you so much.